Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once I reviewed each of his works in the chronological order of publication, but Ka is a wheel, it all goes round again, and here I am once more back at the beginning on a new phase of the journey to examine each of the endings of the works of Stephen King to determine whether or not King deserves his reputation for having an inability to successfully land his endings. The focus of the podcast is going to be to examine the climax, the falling action, and the resolution of the endings of each of his novels and break it down by character, themes, conflict, and plot to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. I will also weigh in on whether or not I happen to personally like the ending. This week, I'm going to be examining the conclusion to Christine. So, in order for me to discuss Christine, I'm going to read the the Wikipedia summary so that we have a basis um, for the ending. So, this is from Wikipedia. In the summer of 1978, while high school student Dennis Gilder is riding home from work with his friend, nerdy teen Arnold Arnie Cunningham, Arnie spots a dilapidated red and white 1958 Plymouth Fury parked behind a house. Arnie makes Dennis stop so he can examine the car, despite Dennis's attempts to talk him out of it. Roland D. LeBay, an elderly gentleman wearing a back brace, sells the car, which he had named Christine to Arnie for $250. While waiting for Arnie to finish the paperwork, Dennis sits inside Christine and has a vision of the car and the surroundings as they were when the car was new 20 years before. Frightened, Dennis decides he dislikes Christine. Arnie brings Christine to a do-it-yourself garage run by Will Darnell, who is suspected of using the garage as a front for illicit operations. As Arnie restores the car, he becomes withdrawn, humorless, and cynical. However, he is also more confident and self-assured than usual. Dennis is puzzled by the changes in Arnie and Christine. The repair work proceeds haphazardly, and the more extensive repairs which Arnie can hardly afford does not appear to be done by Arnie himself. Arnie's appearance improves in tandem with Christine's. His severe acne clears up and becomes more self-assured and cocky. When LeBay dies, Dennis meets his younger brother, George, who reveals LeBay's history of anger and violent behavior. George also reveals that LeBay's small daughter choked to death on a hamburger in the back seat of the car and that LeBay's wife, depressed by the loss of her child, committed suicide in its front seat by carbon monoxide poisoning. As time passes, Dennis observes that Arnie is taking on many more of LeBay's personality traits and has begun dressing like a 1950s greaser and wearing his hair in a 50s duck-ass style. Dennis also sees that Arnie has become close to Darnell, even acting as a courier in Darnell's interstate smuggling operations. When Arnie has almost finished restoring Christine, he begins dating an attractive transfer student named Lee Cabot. Arnie's parents refuse to keep Christine at home and force Arnie to put it in an airport parking lot. Soon afterwards, Clarence Buddy Repperton, a bully who blames Arnie for his expulsion from school, learns where Christine is being kept and vandalizes the car with help from his gang. Arnie, unaware of Christine's ability to repair herself, pushes her through Darnell's garage until enough of the damage is undone for her to run, then drives her around and around the junkyard until she's brought all the way back. Arnie strains his back in the process and begins wearing a back brace, the same as LeBay did. While on a date with Arnie, Lee nearly chokes to death on a hamburger and is saved only by the intervention of a hitchhiker who uses the Heimlich maneuver. Lee notices that Christine's dashboard lights seem to become glaring green eyes watching her during the incident and that Arnie half-heartedly tried to save her by ineffectually pounding her on the back. She then realizes that she and Christine are competing for Arnie's affections and vows to never get in the car again. A number of inexplicable car-related deaths occur around town. The victims include Darnell, Buddy, and all but one of his accomplices in the vandalism. 
The police find evidence linking Christine to each of the murders, but none is found on the car itself. A detective named Rudy Jenkins Junkins, becomes suspicious of Arnie despite his airtight alibis. It is revealed that Christine, possessed by LeBay's vengeful spirit, is committing these murders independently and repairing herself after each one. Lee and Dennis begin their own relationship, unearthing details of Christine and LeBay's past. Past, sorry. Dennis speculates that LeBay may have deliberately sacrificed his daughter and wife to make Christine a receptacle for his own spirit. They also compare Arnie's signatures from before and after his purchase of Christine with LeBay's. One evening, Arnie stumbles upon Lee and Dennis being intimately close in Dennis's car, sending him into a rage. Soon after, Junkins is mysteriously killed in a car crash. Knowing that they are next, Dennis and Lee devise a plan to destroy the car and save Arnie. While Arnie is out of town visiting a college, Dennis and Lee lure Christine to the garage and batter her to pieces using a septic tanker truck named Petunia, which is rented by Dennis. Dennis briefly witnesses LeBay's spirit attempting to make him stop before the wreckage is crushed. Dennis learns that Arnie and his mother were both killed in a highway accident, while Christine earlier killed Arnie's father. Witness accounts led Dennis to believe that LeBay's spirit, tied to Arnie through Christine, fled to Plymouth and attempted to repossess Arnie, but Arnie fought him at least to a draw, resulting in the fatal wreck. Four years later, Dennis and Lee have ended their relationship. He reads about a freak car accident in Los Angeles, in which a drive-in theater employee, the last surviving member of Buddy's gang, was struck and killed by a car that smashed through a cinder block wall. Dennis speculates that Christine might have rebuilt herself and is setting out to kill everyone who stood against her, saving him for last. Okay, um, so before I talk about the conclusion to Christine, I want to go back in time uh, about, what, five years um, and talk about what a joy it was for me to revisit Christine for the purposes of this podcast um, if you have not listened to my review of Christine, I just ask you personally to please listen to it because it might, the introduction is still the favorite thing that I've done for the podcast. And, um, this is for the, the, the for the purpose of the podcast on the initial go around, it was the second time I had read Christine. The first of course being when I, when I read it for the first time when I was 13, which was prior to me owning a car and being that age and understanding um, the love that gets interwoven with um, with one's first car. So it, it the world just opened up to me in a way that was not ready for me when I first read Christine. So I really enjoyed rereading Christine for the purposes of the podcast. I'm really proud of the podcast episode that I did on Christine. So I was, you know, excited to talk about the ending of of Christine once again um, because this is a uh, story that has grown um, in my estimation since rediscovering it uh, for the podcast about five <clears throat> years ago or so and I really enjoy the John Carpenter adaptation as well so I was excited to discuss uh, the ending here and so in order for us to discuss whether or not this um, is both um, objectively a good ending and subjectively an ending that I happen to like, let's talk about what makes up a good ending, criteria for a good ending. Um, does it provide an appropriate conclusion to its characters that are consistent with the characters' actions, conflicts, or themes of the book? All right. Um, I would say not really. Uh, the main character, Arnie, uh, is shuffled out of the story off page 
Um, you can argue that it it lends an unpredictability to the final showdown um, with uh, Dennis Lee and Petunia. But for the story to spend so much time with Arnie only to kill him off in a sequence that we're not privy to and only find out about it after the final conflict, that's a choice. Um, I just don't know if it happens to be a good one. Um, I'll say this. It works in a sense that the novel is a love letter to the teenage death songs of the 1950s. And by relegating Arnie's fiery fate off page, then it turns his tale into its own teenage death song, one to be sung by the surviving members of his tale. Um, however, in terms of traditional storytelling, it's, it's an odd choice. And to not have him factor into the final showdown, it's a, it's a wasted opportunity. Um, either he is a part of Christine and his obsession and jealousy fuels the car as he tries to kill his best friend and former girlfriend, or his function with the conflict is that of a wild card. Will he be able to resist the allure of Christine? Will it be a three-way showdown between Roland LeBay, Arnie, and Dennis slash Lee? Um, by removing Arnie from the the the, um, the confrontation at the end, um, a book that up until that point had been uh, a story of the um, corruption of of Arnie's soul is rendered moot because the character whose soul was being corrupted no longer factors into the the conclusion. So unless I'm missing something, unless I'm missing some sort of thematic statement. Um, that that um, supports um, the, the 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 character's removal from the conflict itself. I cannot, or the climax itself. I, I can't um, state that this is an appropriate conclusion to the characters um, when, if not necessarily pro the protagonist, because so much of the story is told through Dennis's eyes, um, but. Uh, the, the character who is the center of this book, with him being gone, I, I, I just don't feel it's an appropriate conclusion to its characters. Next question is around plot. Does it successfully wrap up the plot? Specifically, do the events build upon one another with consistency? Yes, um, I would say so. The haunted car is crushed beyond repair, or so it seems. And the ghoulish button at the end allows for the ghost car's revenge to continue in the minds of the readers. So, you know... It's a win-win from a plot perspective. Does the conclusion serve the theme, symbolism, and motifs? I would say not particularly. Uh, for a story about addiction, teenage love, teenagers moving into adulthood, the conclusion of the story doesn't seem to service any of the themes and instead gives us a straightforward showdown that includes a large piece of machinery battling a smaller piece of machinery. One happens to be possessed by a ghost and the ghost being there it's, it itself. Again, I think that if you remove the character when so much of the themes had been wrapped up in the character's struggles and um, devolution um, into... Um, you know, a, a more corrupted state. By removing that character, you're removing the themes. And the things that, well, fueled the engine of this particular book are gone. You have an inert theme there at the end. Um, one that's just stalled dead on the side of the road. Came up with that one as I was speaking. Pretty proud of that. Um, are there other factors that we need to consider? Th this question is kind of a, an X factor. Um, you know, is there just anything within the book that is not... Um, covered in the terms of the, the, the theme or the plot or the characters that, that I think that we need to discuss. And I would say, um, are there other factors that we need to consider? I mean, there there's a sheer ridiculousness to the ending of this novel, but you can't deny that it's thrilling. 
from when Dennis and Lee start planning their scheme um, to the defeat of the Haunted Fury to the showdown in the garage, it's hard to put down. And that's a testament to King's ability as a storyteller. I don't think that it serves the characters very well. I don't think that it serves the themes very well. I think that the way that he is able to construct the plot through storytelling still demonstrates his ability as a writer and why he's been put on this earth. Um, whatever issues that I'm having with the conclusion of this book, I can't say that it's not an enjoyable read. It is. Um, it is an enjoyable read. Um, you can't put it down. I want to know what happens, but I, I just don't think that it, it fulfills the potential of what um, the, the two-thirds leading up to it um, promised us. Promised us. Um, another question that I have been asking here and there is that the most famous scene um, included in the conclusion of the book. Now, this is not... Um, th this, again, is, is more of a factor that we need to consider um, because there's nothing to say that the most famous scene has to occur within the conclusion. I, I don't think that it hurts a conclusion to a story if the most famous scene occurs within the conclusion, but um, you know, this is a question that I, I just kind of like to, to mull over. And um, for me, the, the most famous scene of Christine doesn't really happen in the book. It happens in the movie, and that's the show me scene. Um, and off the top of my head, I can't remember if show if that if that particular scene happens within the book. Um, but uh, I I would say that that once Christine comes alive and starts killing the the characters, um, that that's the, the the most famous scene. Although which death um, I I can't quite remember um, off the top of my head as I as I read this, but. Um, but I would say that the, the showdown at the end with Petunia is not the one that's remembered the, the most, personally. So what it comes down to is this. Two questions. Is it a good ending and do I like the ending? All right. So up until this point, um, we have had, um, I, I've covered nine, I've covered nine stories um, of, of Stephen King's endings. And at this point, he has been nine for nine nine endings that I feel that based on the criteria that I have examined um, the endings uh, through I, I feel that they the books have been both good and they happen to be endings that I like um, so this is the ninth and this is what I have to say do I like the ending yes for the for the the, the X factor that I had, I had discussed I said that um, it's hard to put down, and that says something. Um, I'm enjoying it. I, I happen to like it. But based on everything that we had discussed in terms of characters and plot and theme, um, I do not think that it's a good ending. Um, Arnie's off-page death and the lack of the thematic wrap-up takes away from the impact of what the ending could have been, and I think that that's a detriment to the conclusion. Um, so what that means is that right now the tally is that um, I happen to like nine out of nine endings um, and only eight out of the nine endings are good. Only um, eight of the nine endings are good. And that's still really, really good. Uh, you know, the, the whole reason why, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this, uh, this new focus on, on the podcast is to talk about endings. So, so what if I don't think it's a good ending? I just said I like the ending. 
And I also start off the podcast by saying that rereading Christine was one of the greatest joys that I had in launching the podcast and doing the podcast. Um, it's going to be a book that I go back to again, and I'm probably going to love it again. And so just because I don't happen to think it's a quote-unquote good ending, it doesn't take away from the experience itself. Um, you know, I do, the, the more that I, I engage with this particular examination, um, I do feel as though we put too much of a weight on endings. Um, if anything, we should learn from Roland Deschane um, that if we focus on the destination and not the journey so much, we um, may be punished for that. And the one doing the punishing, it's really, it's ourselves. Um, and in some cases, uh, very, um, very controlled masters of the art who know um, how to punish us. Um, because there's definitely times when endings... Um, reflect the, the fact that the, the artist does not want to give us what he or she knows, what we want. Um, but for the most part, we're the one that, that, that punishes ourselves. Okay, guys, um, that's all that I got. It's a short episode this week, but I wanted to, to definitely put it out there um, for you so that you have something to, to spend the time with as we all continue to quarantine, and I hope that everyone is staying safe. Oh, Wait, wait a minute. I lied. I'm sorry. I do have some recommendations for everyone um, on top of the podcast. Something to, to keep you um, entertained and busy as we continue to, to self-quarantine. Um, so a couple recommendations that I have. Uh, what We Do in the Shadows has returned. Um, so you can check out the entire first season um, and the first two episodes of the second season. My wife and I watched the first episode of the second season last night, and it's just a lot of fun. If you um, are not familiar with what we do in the shadows, it was a film that came out a few years ago by Taika Watiti and uh, uh, Jermaine uh, Clement. Um, they, they both had worked on Flight of the Concords, and of course, um, Taika Waititi has, has blown up. Um, he is now an Oscar winner with... Um, Jojo Rabbit, but um, you know, Thor Ragnarok is where it's at, um, and now he's working um, Thor: Love and Thunder. Can't wait for that. But um, so you know, they executive produce it, but and it's 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 you know run by a, a different crew, but it definitely has the spirit of the movie, which was a lot of fun. And if you just want twenty eight minutes of um, you know vampire hijinks and mockumentary, then this is the the show for you. I don't know if I rem if I remember correctly, but w whether I talked about this on, on the Gunslinger episode or not. But if you are a fan of Star Wars and you want to just get away from the 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 constant argument about whether or not the Last Jedi is you know the best movie or the worst movie, whether or not Rise of Skywalker is a good going back to conclusions. But you know whether or not it's it's good or it's bad, and you're sick of the the um, you know just how volatile Star Wars uh, discussion is online, and you just want something that is pure and manages to do what live action cannot do at the moment, which is unify Star Wars fans. Then everyone should really check out. Um, uh, Star Wars Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels. I just um, I just concluded Star Wars Rebels. I had put off on watching it because I had been such a fan of the Clone Wars, um, but Rebels I, I wound up falling in love with, and um, 
is just a good show that captures the the spirit of the original trilogy while being its own thing. It blends um, time periods so well in the lead up to A New Hope. You know, there's still, you know, uh, there's still elements of uh, the, the Clone Wars still existing in the galaxy from whether it be uh, clone troopers still around or remnants of separatist droids still around or, you know, like logistically ships um, and military wear would would still, from the separatist um, army and, and the, 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 the Republic army would still, you know, be around um, and characters that you had known in the Clone Wars who were trying to find their way in a new Imperial-controlled galaxy are still around and there's just this cool blending of of uh of eras um while and it both honors all aspects of star wars while pushing star wars forward um and clone wars does what lucas himself could not do in the live action movies and and make um the clone wars be legendary um and it really gets into the political intrigue of of these particular wars and really examines, I think I did talk about this last week, and it really examines the, 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 the toll of the war on the expendable um, warriors fighting. I don't know if you can hear that, but that's that's my daughter. Um, and uh, Clone Wars is great. It's, it's wrapping up it's a series on Disney Plus. The Siege of Mandalore Part One just aired this past week, and my mouth was open from the second it began um, to the, and my mouth has not closed since because it just raised the bar in terms of what it was trying to do. Um, so I, I strongly recommend it, especially if you're fans of The Mandalorian. I feel like you you almost need to watch The Clone Wars and Rebels in order to get the most out of um, The Mandalorian. Because as much as um, John Favreau is the the showrunner of The Mandalorian, you know the other person whose name is a part of it is Dave Filoni, and Dave Filoni was the um, was the showrunner and visionary behind. Clone Wars and Rebels. So, spoiler alert for The Mandalorian, when you see um, the Darksaber show up at the end, um, that, in order to understand the significance of that, you need to see the Darksaber in Clone Wars and in Rebels and the legacy and the history of this and what it means to Mandalorians because Mandalorians play a massive role in both Clone Wars and Rebels, not just The Mandalorian itself. Um, I'm very fortunate that I was able to um, catch up on the last season of Better Call Saul. Um, I loved Better Call Saul when it first aired. Watched the first two seasons. Um, the first three, I don't even know where we are right now, but um, I, I, I fell off and I was able to get back in. And the meticulousness um, that uh, Vince Gilligan and his crew um, have when, 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 when crafting each episode each minute within the episode knowing what's right for the characters in the moment and how it's going to pay off for them later on down the road what it means for breaking bad um it's it's just really amazing detailed storytelling um and you know it it's in its own way as as tense as breaking bad with much lower stakes 
in some ways and greater stakes in other ways because it's it's about oh, the corruption of potential um, of, of what someone can be and it's about you know when someone's potential runs up against um, you know the limitations of, of society and, and what's accepted and what's not and there's classism and um, there's uh, you know who we are at our core versus who we are you know who we want to be who others see us as there's just there's a lot to the show um, the performances are fantastic everything the writing is fantastic it is it's just a really good show um, it's obviously not as um, high octane as Breaking Bad but uh, it's it's definitely um, in its own way as good if not a better show because from the jump it it started with the creative team at its highest power coming off of the uh, um, the finale of Breaking Bad so this is a creative team that was fully in control of their storytelling capabilities whereas the, you know Breaking Bad had to figure out um, you know the show that it wanted to be by the time it concluded they knew these characters so well that it, they knew exactly what Better Call Saul needed to be. And lastly, I finally signed up for Shudder, um, which I'm really, really enjoying. We, we watched uh, Cursed Films, um, which is just a, you know, each episode is just a short, um, you know, look at different films that have the quote-unquote curse. Um, they look at Poltergeist, they look at The Omen, um, they look at Twilight Zone, they look at The Crow, um, you know, and... You know these movies obviously don't have curses but they're they're kind of famous for having curses and you know it, it, it shows the the human part and the human toll and the human tragedy that occurs um, when we say that these movies are, are cursed and, and really play it up and, and romanticize it so um, you know we watch that and uh, we watch Channel Zero Dream Door um, we we where I, I'm a huge fan of um, the first season of Channel Zero, um, Candle Cove, um, and then, you know, I, I admired um, the, the the subsequent two seasons. I don't even think I finished the the meat whatever the, the meat one was. What's it called? I can't remember. Um, I liked them. I, I think there's a lot of talent there, but it just didn't it didn't. Um, to me, it didn't live up to the hype, um, the heights of Candle Cove, and I really liked Dream Door. Um, I think it was like maybe two episodes too long, but I still strongly recommend it. Um, there's definitely, there's definitely some super creepy stuff that that occurs within it. Um, and now that I have Shutter, I'm gonna check out Creep Show, um, Joe Bob's Drive-In, Horror Noir. Um, I'm very excited to have Creep Show. I should have gotten it a long time ago, but I finally have it, so stay tuned. Okay, guys, um, next week I'm going to be reviewing the conclusion to Pet Cemetery. Um, so in the meantime, you can get all my thoughts on Pet Cemetery um, in my review of the book itself, uh, my review of the Mary Lambert movie. My review of the the recent adaptation that came out two years ago um, and I'll get into the ending next week if you have any thoughts about the ending of um, Christine that I might have missed or any of the endings that we had talked about already or the ending of Pet Cemetery, you can always write into to Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com and if you have a couple minutes on your hands leave a review because that would really help me out as well and that's all I got uh, for this week 
So may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast.